but probably even more importantly, what similarity is, right? Because there are some things that are funny no matter where you go, right? There's some things that are not, right? There are some things that are joyful no matter where you go and some things that are not. Um, there are some things that are bound to start a fight wherever you go um, and some things that won't. And I think understanding the commonality across us um, is probably the best gift of all, right? Is that those things that are truly and 100% human, two people whose paths would never have crossed um, except for uh, in this place and time who can find commonality and uh, and in pretty deep and profound appreciation for one another, um, you know, in, in an instant. And that, I think, is a, is a beautiful reminder and something that I hope your kids and my kids take with them. My guest today is Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. Welcome to Tetua with Benjamin Morse. the show. I'm really glad that you're here today to listen in to my conversation with Dr. Abdullah El-Sayed. He is a physician, epidemiologist, educator, author, speaker, and podcast host. We first met back when I was an entrepreneur. I was competing in a pitch competition at the University of Michigan, and he was the keynote speaker. He told an incredible story about his work as Detroit's health director, where he would often work with kids who faced uncertain futures because of the health risks present in their communities. From that moment on, and really hearing him tell the story about his work in Detroit, I've been a huge fan of Abdul's work. Better yet, the speech that he gave at that pitch competition, it was only a few days after he announced his historic candidacy for the governor of Michigan, which would have seen him become America's first Muslim governor. While he didn't win that race, he earned tremendous support from progressives all over the country, led by Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and he touched lives of thousands of people across Michigan and well beyond across our entire country. He really helped define his vision for a better future and really the future of the progressive movement. He has a unique brand of progressivism, and he's continuing to define that every single conversation that he has. And this one is no different. Abdul and I started uh, connecting uh, again back in 2017, and we've stayed in touch over the years. And I'm always inspired by his ability to capture and articulate the moment. He really helps us all think about our collective paths forward and the best way that we can improve ourselves and our role in society. In this episode, Abdul and I talk about the role that travel plays in developing and defining one's identity. He shares his experiences traveling between the United States and Egypt as a child and how those trips continue to shape his life today. We also talk about his time living in the United Kingdom as a graduate student and what lessons he learned from abroad that he's been able to bring back home to Michigan. We touch on his 2018 run for the governor of Michigan, his reflections and current thoughts on the COVID-19 pandemic, and what the future of travel looks like as we begin to engage in exploration once again. At the end of the conversation, uh, we wrap things up in a similar manner to when I first met Abdul with him speaking about the future of the progressive movement and where his views and his role in particular is evolving and really how he thinks 
that will shift into his next steps. I hope that you all enjoy this one. Uh, I know that I got a lot out of it. So ahead is my conversation with Dr. Abdul El Sayed. All right, Dr. Abdul El Sayed, thanks for joining the podcast. It's awesome to see you again virtually. Benjamin, it's my uh, privilege. Thanks for having me and excited to, uh, to have a great conversation together. Yeah, I do want to mention uh, at the top of this, uh, like I said, I live on the island of St. Martin and they did inform us that our power might be disrupted this afternoon. So if you lose me, <laughs> you know what happened. I do. And we'll have a great story to, uh, to tell about it. So, Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I understand you just took a little bit of time off. Uh, we were just chatting. You've been working your ass off over the last, I mean, really a long period of time, but definitely uh, since the pandemic started. And I saw that, you know, you've been traveling uh, all over the place. I think I saw you went to what Puerto Rico, New York City, to name a few, probably a couple other spots in there. Uh, just want to kick it off. Like, what was it like to travel again? You know, travel uh, in normal times is a big part of my life. Um, you know, in, in the year of 2020, before the pandemic, I did 35 flights to put in perspective. So uh, travel is, is sort of part of my, my normal. And uh, I hadn't traveled uh, since the pandemic kicked off. I think my last flight was on March 15th in, um, in 2020, and I didn't get on a plane until June of uh, 2021. And so it was somewhat surreal. Um, and then the other overwhelming uh, piece of things, and I think you know, human experience is uh, most apt and, and, and most telling in the places where uh, normal meets uncommon. And I think watching the pandemic in the way that it has changed so many places that I got to go and also um, all of the ways that, you know, I'd, I'd sort of missed out on travel and missed travel mm-hmm. um, and all of the people in that I got to meet where I went and the different stories that they got to tell of the pandemic gave me a, a, a more crisp view of what we just come through. Um, and in some respects in appreciating what I had again, uh, came to, 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 to sort of sense what was lost, um, in, in so many ways. And so really, really grateful to have been able to travel again, but also somewhat nostalgic, right, for, uh, for, for the time before and the time that was lost. And, and also, you know, the, the pangs of this pandemic felt again in the stories that I got to hear from the people that I got to meet in so many different places, different views on the same global experience. Yeah, I think the, the together apart uh, notion really mm. sets in here. And like when I moved down to the island in December, uh, COVID was still really bad in Michigan. And, you know, we, we moved down here and coming into a new community, into a new culture and into a very new circumstance, I think immediately, you know, pulled up that mirror that travel offers you. So you can start kind of seeing what life is like back where you live, but then, you know, comparing it to uh, the billions of people that live across our world and how we're all dealing with this in, in a very different uh, but similar way, right? That's right. That's right. I, it must have been somewhat surreal to, you know, to move to a new place uh, and to experience a new place in the context of this thing. I, you know, I, um, 
I can't imagine what that's like, right? Just because there's a different sort of tone and tenor that you get in a place when you're there as a tourist and you know you're a tourist versus when you're there to, to set up home, right? There's a depth uh, and a flavor that I think you can only come to appreciate in the sort of interstitia of people's lives, like the differences in how people do their laundry or, you know, what the sort of custom of going out for an evening looks like or um, the things that people do on their mornings, right? Or, you know, when you flip on a radio station, what are they talking about? Th- those are things that, y- y- you know, the, in the humdrum of everyday life, that's where you really start to see the differences in a place. Yeah, absolutely. I, c- I couldn't agree more. And one of the things that we talk about a lot on on this show is carrying your identity with you into these new spaces and using travel as a way to kind of better understand who you are and how your body moves throughout this world. And I know that we had briefly talked about this before, but you know, I know your family's from Egypt and as a child, you spent summers going between the U S and Egypt. And I'd love to know a little bit more about what it was like to go between these, these two different countries, especially growing up as a child. And I'd be really curious to hear a little bit more about how you've carried your identity with you across these different contexts, time, space. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, um, I grew up, I, I'm, I'm ethnically 100% Egyptian, uh, and I grew up in a family where my father is an immigrant from Egypt, and my stepmother, who raised me, uh, is a daughter of the American Revolution. I obviously grew up, actually all over the U.S., but grew up mainly in Michigan. And, um, and in some respects, I came to understand very quickly that I was never, ever going to be of the place that I was in. And, you know, as people tend to focus on difference. And if you want to know who you are, look at how other people look at what in, in the beginning, what other people tell you you are. Right. And so much of who, how we construct ourselves is in either supplement or complement to what other people tell us. And, um, you know, as an Egyptian American, the thing that stood out about me was, you know, my olive complexion and the fact that my name is 11 letters long and that's just the first name. Um, and so I was always very aware of those differences and at the same time had a sense of a space to be able to talk them through because I had family that was white American. And, and so it was a sort of canvas to be able to actually look into these things in a much deeper way than the sort of interactions that you might get even in a school search circumstance when things can get kind of oppositional. But it wasn't really until I went to Egypt for the first time and I, you know, I had this somewhat adolescent perspective that I was going to be in a place where everybody looked like me. And that was true. Everybody did look like me, but they didn't walk like me. They didn't talk like me. They didn't have attitudes like I did. And so, you know, the thing that stood out out about being Egyptian American in Egypt was that I was American. And um, that was uh, a really helpful recognition. And also, I I think though when I was young, I... um, I often looked at this circumstance, this arrangement, very in a very frustrated way because I kind of wanted to be just of a place. It also taught me how to code switch in in a really profound way to understand what it is about people that are the same and what it is about people that are different, and also to look for the things that are the same mm-hmm. and to find them and to understand how to articulate myself uh, and who I was to people from all over the place because I was forced to do that from a very young age, right? There was no sense of you are normal and we understand who you are and what you are and that's it. I always had to explain myself. And so I got really good at explaining myself, which was, um, uh, which I, I found 
found when I started to travel more broadly, a really profound asset. I got to live in the UK during grad school and it was sort of this fascinating culmination of things because uh, people would ask me, where are you from? And I'd say, well, that's a complicated question. Um, I am American, but my family is of Egyptian origin, so I'm Egyptian American. And they'd say, well, are you Egyptian or are you American? I'd say, I'm both. And neither, right? I, yeah. I uh, you know, if you, you you talk to some Americans, they'd say he doesn't belong here, and you talk to uh, to some Egyptians, they say he's not from here, um, and and so I prefer to make that both rather than neither. And then, uh, interestingly, I um, I remember trying to articulate this to one of my mentors in in England who is Australian. And I said, you know, I am American, but that's always with an asterisk, right? right? Because not everybody accepts me as as American, even though I was born and raised here. And I've got, you know, family who's been here since before the Revolutionary War. I just, because of how I look and how I pray and what my name is. And he said, you know, Abdul, that's funny because... To me, you're probably the most American of the bunch, <laughs> which uh, forced me to step back and, and just um, appreciate, you know, the ways that we see each other um, in different places and different times. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And, and really well said. I think, you know, when when you travel, the, the classroom of travel offers you that really unique and important opportunity to have that insight and to learn those lessons. And, you know, I, I think... Like I reflect on my four-year-old and my two-and-a-half-year-old that are down here on the island with us, and uh, they traveled to Ethiopia with us. We've been to Europe a few times, and the exposure that that we're giving them is giving them a, a taste of that. And they're they're not going to remember these experiences. Uh, they're going to see pictures of themselves abroad, and I think that it's going to plant that seed to then have those conversations, right? And I think it's that opportunity to put yourself in those positions to then actually be forced to think about those things in ways that when we're in our own communities, when we're in our own circles, uh, when we're just hanging out with our family, we may not venture into those headspaces, right? And I, I think you really just articulated that well. I think that's that's right. It's also that, you know, there are the things that they'll remember about the people and the places that they went and the time they spent there. But there's also the skills that they remember about being in a new place and about um, learning the, the the tone and the tenor and the rhythm of that place, um, paying attention to what difference Probably is. Probably more importantly, what similarity is, right? Because there are mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. some things that are funny no matter where you go, right? There's some things that are not, right? And there are some things that are mm-hmm. joyful no matter where you go and some things that are not. Um, there are some things that are bound to start a fight wherever you go. Um, and some things that won't. And I think understanding the commonality across us um, is probably the best gift of all, right? Is that those things that are truly and 100% human, two people whose paths would never have crossed um, except for uh, in this place and time who can find commonality and uh, and, and, and pretty deep and profound appreciation for one another, um, you know, in, in an instant. And that, I think, is a, is a beautiful reminder and something that I hope your kids and my kids take with them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely agree with that. Um, I think that, you know, our listeners, uh, myself included, would be curious to learn a little bit more about how travel has shaped your career, specifically, you know, at the intersections of public health, public policy, politics, the the spaces that you're often, uh, you know, embodying and, and uh, kind of working through and defining yourself. I'd be curious what lessons from your time abroad uh, that you've you've been able to kind of uh, sit with for a bit, uh, and then what you brought you know back to Detroit and your work there, and maybe across Michigan as well. Yeah, well, I, I um 
I really appreciate that question, and I'll share a couple of instances. You know, when I um, came back to Detroit uh, from New York, where I had been studying and, and teaching, um, it was uh, a place that I'd known, but I hadn't really you know, invested in. And this was an opportunity for me to really get invested in the community. And in some respects, um, it was a really important learning experience for me because it was both home, right, but also a home that I couldn't act- actively claim because I hadn't lived there. Um, and so many of the lessons that I'd learned being abroad or learned just being a, uh, a sort of chameleon in this world, trying to, you know, explain myself um, to, to folks, mm-hmm. um, those came in, in, in real, uh, came in real handy when I was doing the work in Detroit. But it was also that finding of, of fundamental humanity that I think was so important because my job there was to, to protect people, to improve the quality and health of their lives, to make sure that their babies uh, were, 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 were living past the age of one, to make sure that their kids weren't coughing uh, because of asthma. That was my job. And there is something fundamental about the well-being of children that I think cuts through all of the differences that we may have between us or the things that we put up as differences between us. And that was a really important experience. Um, you know, I got to, to travel the state uh, as a politician uh, when I ran for governor. And, um, you know, I had done my work in Detroit. I was born uh, born and raised in Oakland County uh, and had spent some time out state, but not as much. And the fascinating mm-hmm. thing was that politically, these, these similarities also held true. That, you know, I'd go to a community like Flint or Detroit or a community like Oscoda um, and start talking mm-hmm. about the same fundamental issues. Why it is that people can't afford their health care why it is that uh, kids are, 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 or parents are, are worried that their kids might get sick because of their water or um, the, the responsibility to protect our Great Lakes. People understood that and they understood that in, in fundamental ways. Take that a step further, you know, after my campaign, I got to go back to the UK where I had spent some time as a grad student. And um, I had the opportunity to give a stump speech on behalf of a labor mm-hmm. candidate uh, in a community uh, in London. And mm-hmm. when I started to speak, I, you know, I, I, I was at that point where I wouldn't really prep for these, these talks. It became sort of secondhand. But when I started to speak, I realized how much of what I was appealing to when I would talk about politics in the United States was a shared understanding of a set of norms, ideals, and values that are truly and Mm -hmm. fundamentally American, right? When I say we hold these truths to be self-evident, right? Most people, right, who are politically engaged can say that all, all men are created equal, right? And when I talk about uh, the the idea of, of liberty and justice, um, people will say for all, right? And these are these are truly American ideals, even if right. we undercut them in so much of the practice of our politics. These are ideals that that we all ascribe to. And as I was in the UK, I realized like there's a lot of history. I just, I mean, I've read about, but I don't understand viscerally. Um, in this space that I can't really appeal to in so many ways because so much of our formation was in response to a monarchy that even if name in name only still exists in the UK. Um, and right. so while I agreed with the politics of this person for whom I was uh, campaigning, it was a fascinating thing because the ideals that we draw on, these moments in history, these uh, understood uh, relics of our past, be they good, bad, or ugly, um, that they weren't shared. And, um, and so it was, it was sort of a bit of a whiplash for me, uh, for the first time saying, wow, like this is actually a really big difference as I try and, you know, persuade, uh, people to believe in a certain set of things when we don't have a shared set or understanding of 
what our values are, even if in name. Yeah, that's that's a, a really fascinating example. And, and I think that especially on the heels of your run, going and having that experience, uh, you know, it sounds like it was a, a really great reflective moment for you to kind of let everything of uh, the, the campaign kind of settle in and, you know, chart your path forward. When I when I think of that campaign, uh, you know, I'm I'm struck by the timing of your your run for governor for Michigan, which really came on the eve of the pandemic in many ways. And I was I was just thinking the other day, if you had been successful, our <laughs> state would have had an epidemiologist, uh, uh, you know, a, a medical doctor at the helm of you know Michigan's response. And uh, I don't want to take anything away from Governor Whitmer's uh, response or her leadership, but I just can't help but think about how things might have been a little bit different. And I'd be curious to hear uh, your reflections on that and kind of where we've been over the past year and a half and just how you've been thinking about those issues since that run. Yeah. I mean, I can't say it's not a thought I haven't um, ruminated on uh, multiple times. And, you know, when you run for office, you don't run for office to have an easy course of it. You run for office to to take on these big issues and hopefully protect people. It's the same reason I I, um, I served as, as Detroit's health commissioner. It's the same reason that I uh, became a doctor and an epidemiologist. And um, there is something about having missed out on the opportunity to, to do that. Um, and, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty, and, and I give uh, lots of plaudits to the governor. She handled this uh, crisis with um, with competence and grace. And, and you know, she was she was a, uh, a leader uh, when it came to keeping mm-hmm. people safe throughout much of the pandemic. Um, you know, ultimately, losing a, a campaign is a hard thing. Campaigning itself is a hard thing. You put yourself out there and uh, not winning is is a hard thing. And I think when the pandemic started, there was a sense of sort of having lost all over again, <laughs> of saying, look, you know, I, I would have been in a position to do something great. Um, and at the same time, right, hindsight's twenty twenty. I, I don't actually know, right? Maybe, maybe uh, some of the political challenges that she faced would have been substantially worse given, you know, my my, my ethnicity and, and, um, right. and faith. But, um, but I will say that uh, this pandemic, I think, has taught us a lot about our mutual connectedness. And mm-hmm. I think when we were at our best in this pandemic, it was because we understood mutuality and collectivity. And unfortunately, we were not at our best for most of this pandemic. Uh, and we're still, you know, unfortunately not at our best. Um, and I think that what this has taught me about where we need to go from here is that we have to ask ourselves about the fundamental technology of all technologies, which is collectivity, right? Humanity was able to build civilization because people were able to count on each other and were able to trust each other, were able to invest in each other. And that didn't go all that well for for, for many people, but it allowed us to, to build together. And we are on a, a long uh, quest to build a society, right, where uh, all people really are created equal and that we can invest and engage with each other uh, in, in the ways that allow all of our, our best assets, uh, best capacities and ideals to shine. And we got a long way to go. Um, and it's not just the pandemic. I think, unfortunately, this pandemic is going to have been a dress rehearsal for a lot of the catastrophes that may hit us uh, and are bearing down on us now with global climate change. Um, and again, this is a uh, a place where collectivity and mutuality matters. We can't do this alone. There's not one person who can solve climate change. It's going to require all of us investing in those solutions. Um, and so we've got a lot of work to do. And in some respects, if the challenge of our future politics is the challenge of co- collectivity uh, and mutuality, you know, the work will continue. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, sitting outside of the U.S. physically right now and, uh, you know, friends in, in Ethiopia and, and different countries around the world, uh, I definitely take a pause to look at the United States vaccination rate as uh, where it sits. And, and I think of countries like Ethiopia, where they sit. Um, and and you see the inequity and you see the, the logistical hurdles, you see the capitalistic structures at play. And I think that the you know, that sentiment of collectivity needs to span our globe right now. And it, it needs to reach so much further than it currently is. Uh, I know, I know you've had lots of thoughts on that recently as well. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, the, the, the tragic irony of where we sit right now is that the majority of Americans are not accessing a vaccine that the majority of the world doesn't have structural access to. They're choosing not to take it. And 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 what's worse is 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 that the same forces that are choosing not to get vaccinated are often behind the politics that tells us to hoard this thing. And um you know yeah. it's just very frustrating to watch. Um and that's the thing is that you know those 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 commonalities, those things that uh all humans share. Um you know when somebody loses their loved one, it's the same pain. Uh, when mm-hmm. somebody loses their livelihood, it's the same pain. And uh, I wish we brought that more often to our politics when it came to an opportunity to save people's lives and protect people. Um, and unfortunately, it seems to only show up when it, when it, when it comes time for making war. Uh, and so I, I think this is a crossroads for us um, ethically and morally. And we have to decide whether or not uh, when we talk our, about ourselves as uh, a global leader, whether or not that means leading on our values uh, in, in, in every circumstance, because this is an opportunity for that. Yeah. And, you know, when I think of the crossroads that we're at, I reflect on, you know, a lot of the, the stuff that you're putting out there, your books, Healing Politics, Medicare for All, The, the Citizen's Guide, uh, I mean, obviously your podcast, uh, The Incision, your newsletter, you, you put a lot of, of thought into engaging with these very difficult topics. And you've been such a leader within the progressive movement. And I'd be curious to hear from you in this current moment about where you see that movement going from here and what role you see yourself continuing to play. Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, um, in, in a lot of ways, the, the progressive movement has measured itself or others have measured it through elections, right? How many elections did you win? Did your candidate win a, win the presidency? Um, and it's plausible that, you know, if you sort of think about the election as a battle, we lost the battle, but we won the war. Um, so much of, of, of President Biden's public policy stances have, uh, have borrowed from the framing of the progressive movement, whether it's recognizing that the solutions to climate change have to be economy-wide solutions uh, that invest in real green infrastructure, whether it's understanding that childhood poverty is a scourge, uh, and any system of politics that told us that, um, you know, that it was, it was uh, a matter of individual individual agency to allow children uh, to, 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 to suffer in poverty uh, was was uh, appropriate, even even desired, that, that that system of politics is bunk and that we have to solve it. Um, you know, the, the, the recognition that we 
uh, we we have to be invested in um, a an economy that gives every worker access to a choice of jobs um, that don't uh, force them into poverty wages, even as they work 12, 14 hour days. Um, these are the direction that mm-hmm. the administration is going that are becoming consensus, uh, not just frankly in the party, but, but becoming consensus uh, in the country. You see people uh, like Mitt Romney who are uh, proposing anti-childhood poverty legislation uh, and it tells you something. Now, um, there's more work to do. There is still a lot more that we have to do. And um, I think that means not just winning elections, but it also means changing culture uh, and reifying ideals in our society. And that's what I'm, I'm trying to, to do right now um, through, through some of my work. But, uh, you know, uh, longer term, I think, um, you know, I, I, I found a lot of meaning and, and fulfillment in um, the political work that I've had the opportunity to do. And I, I hope that I get the opportunity to pursue it again. Ultimately, though, um, you know, it, it, this is all about the next generation. And you're a father. I am as well. And, uh, you know, both of us get the opportunity to have the, the, the best office in the land, which is to be uh, a father to our children. And so, you know, I, I take that very seriously. And I, um, I, I often weigh, you know, what direction tactically I end up going against what the cost might be uh, for uh, my daughter. And, and, and our family. And so, you know, life is life is uh, short, but it's also quite long. And I, I think, um, you know, I, I, I wouldn't want to have uh, have missed the opportunity um, to build out my little piece of, of the future, which is which is my little girl and, you know, and also contribute to the world in which she's going to grow up and, 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 and hopefully one day uh, in which she'll lead. And um, and that, I think, is our prime responsibility. Yeah, very, very well said. And, you know, I, I think that 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 resonates really strongly with my wife and I and, and our kids and how we're trying to step into kind of this next chapter uh, of things. Um, kind of, you know, wrapping it up here as, as we're thinking, you know, through the travel lens, what do you think the future of travel looks like for this world? And, you know, what advice do you have for folks that are, you know, maybe thinking about uh, going out for a jaunt after, you know, sitting in their basement for a year and a half? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think um, a, a travel is, is still a, a true, a true and deep gift. I think um, one of the things that we saw in this pandemic is a how much we can engage with people independent of actually moving our own bodies, which is important considering the fact that you know travel is still a really high carbon cost activity. Mm-hmm. At the same time, though, um, I do think we saw a lot of folks who said, you know what, like I'm going to go really experience a new place rather than just go there for a week and hang out on a beach. I'm going to go to a place for a month, two months, uh, and um, engage that way. And so I think the nature of travel, uh, like like all things, is is being you know counter commoditized in a way that um, democratizes access, but also allows people a level of, of access that is a bit further or deeper than the, um, the surface level interactions that, that too often, you know, we get. So I encourage people, right, to, to spend some time. And if your job allows you uh, to work from somewhere else, like take advantage of that. That's a big deal. Um, and you know, those, those moments that you spend experiencing a different place, uh, really can have a profound impact on your outlook if you allow them. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking some time after your travels and after, uh, all the, all the hard work you've been putting in. So grateful to be able to chat with you today. The privilege is mine. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And thank you for uh, shining a light on this really important um, aspect of our lives. And, uh, and good luck. Uh, enjoy your time in St. Martin. <laughs> Thanks, Abdul. All right, everybody. That was Dr. Abdul El Sayed. And let me just say, he did not disappoint in that conversation. He is truly 
and enigma and really brings nuance and gets into the minutiae of all of the topics that we took on in our conversation today. Such a delight and a pleasure to have him featured today on the show. Uh, I would encourage all of you to follow along with Abdul as he continues to evolve his perf- personal and professional aspirations and his life, especially along his political career. Uh, subscribe to his newsletter called The Incision, which dives deeper into uh, current trends that are shaping this moment. Have a look for him on CNN. He's always uh, on there talking about the current happenings across our country and the world. I would also encourage all of you to take a look at his two books, both Healing Politics and Medicare for All, A Citizen's Guide. Those two books, I think, provide such a foundational understanding of the way that Abdul thinks about politics, the progressive movement, healthcare in the United States. And he uses both of those books, I think, to help us define the future and think about what our country could be as we're all moving forward. So go into those books, uh, really, really enjoy the, the content coming out of there and really spend some time with them. Uh, to get the short versions of those uh, of that content, I would also encourage you to subscribe to America Dissected, which is his podcast through Crooked Media, uh, where he talks about all things health. And one thing that I particularly like about his show is that he is so interdisciplinary in his approach. He's able to take uh, a, a lens of public health and, and medical uh, science, and he's able to then look at the social justice implications, the environmental implications implications, the sociological implications, and really expand that out to help broaden all of our understandings of a particular topic. So definitely give him a listen on his own show. And then for my show, I'm really just so grateful that all of you listened to this episode. It was a special treat for me to be able to talk to Abdul again in this medium Uh, A quick announcement on my end, Uh, I've been developing a website over the past couple weeks and I'm excited to be launching it this week, uh, techawat.com. So go over there and check it out once it's live and go into the back catalog, have a look at some of the other conversations I've had on the show and please send me your thoughts, your feedback, Uh, go onto the platforms as per usual and you know, if you like the show, give me a five-star rating. Really appreciate that. If you can write a review, that would also be really helpful. Uh, thanks for coming along this journey with me. I'm so incredibly grateful to have you here listening in, and I look forward to releasing a new episode in two weeks. Thanks again, and enjoy the rest of your week.